What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Contractor Secrets Podcast. Very, very, very special guest today, the one and only Nick Slavic. If you don't know Nick, this guy just brings house painting restoration to a whole nother level, not only by the way that he you know, does the chops. I mean, that's one standard that's although above everyone else. Okay, very cool. Other people do good work, but it's about how his company culture is ran. The apprenticeship programs that he has for his individuals that he dubs DHB, decent human beings, and turns them into craftspeople. What a great lesson uh, that Nick provides for us here by joining us on the Contractor Secrets Podcast. My suggestion to you is get your notepad out. If you're driving, take mental notes, come back to it. This guy's going to give you some advice that will transcend into your business and deliver you success because he's done it, he's doing it, and uh, it was just a great episode. I, I mean, I had a page full of notes, just taking notes, soaking it all in. This guy's a a wealth of information, so so thankful for him to join us, and I really, really hope that you enjoy this episode. The big question you need to ask yourself every day is, do I own a job or do I own a business? And unfortunately, the majority of contractors out there own a job. That's right, they're a slave to their own business. But the other side of the fence is so much greener, it's so much better, and that's when you're finally fully in control of your destiny, your freedom, your time, and that's what Contractor Secrets is about. It's about taking back our time, building a business with systems, standards, values, procedures, putting yourself in the driver's seat, and that's what it's about. So I'm excited. I'm happy to have you here. Let's dive into the Contractor Secrets Podcast. Uh, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Contractor Secrets Podcast. I don't know how I did it, but somehow Nick Slavic decided that he would uh, grace us with his uh, presence and wisdom to join us today. And it's going to be a great episode because Nick is someone that I think most of us look up to in terms of processes, systems. That's what our uh, motto here is about is kind of figuring out what the secret is. So, um, you know, Nick, I actually pinged a couple of my friends uh and said you know hey i got nick coming out coming on the podcast what questions would you like me to ask him the biggest question was what is that training process like to to work for nick slavic restoration co we all want to know what does it take to get somebody from a newbie apprentice to somebody that you you know consider someone you could trust to service your customers let's start there yeah man so um I feel that my life is when I interact with other, you know, bright minds like you, it's like a long series of unsatisfying answers that I have because <laughs> through experience, through data, through, through all this other stuff, I found that there is no shorts really. We all, I mean, it's diet and exercise. It's you eat less, you move more magically, you become healthier. It's the same right. thing with a painting business. You do a certain amount of unsatisfying things and you get a good result. So the training is no different. The actual training to me is like putting the enamel on a set of kitchen cabinets. All the real important work has already been done by the time you actually get to that point. So uh, a couple of weeks ago on the Ask a Painter show, I actually, I was having this conversation over and over. I actually made a list of things you need to do before you start bringing people into your company. And it's all the things you talk about, all those systems, all those processes, because right. the training part by the time you get a decent human being in your company, if you don't have any of those other things in place, they're going to have a bad experience. But 
let's say you have all the things in place that you need to run a fairly successful business. You know how to estimate, you have a proven product, your job costing, you know, you, you can hold employees accountable. When you actually get somebody in, they have to meet your core values. For me, it's always culture. Um, people who come to me and say they have painting experience, it's almost a negative because uh, I know what comes with that. So when somebody does come in here, though, we just started Apprenticeship 2.0. And this okay. is basically a one to two week process now. It's as intentional, as formal as we've ever made it. The first week, um, we have two two-day modules. Uh, the first half a day, uh, they sit down with me and my head trainer, Parker, and we onboard them into the company. We, we introduce them to, you know, all of our, you know, Slack messaging and Google Drive and things like that. We safety train them through our, through our you know, kind of a formal safety training program. And then we introduce them to wall painting. So we're obviously in winter here. The two big things for me are painting cabinets and painting walls. So we have a two-day module on painting walls. We have a two-day module on painting cabinets and we follow and please cut me off at any time i'm allowed no i'll keep it I going man i'm taking no, I'm taking. I'm, I'm reviewing this later go ahead so again behind everything is three decades of experience overlaid onto this so okay. we introduce them to walls in a special way we follow the doragi method you know the demonstrate observe you know that sort of process yeah. where it's in the army they taught us you know the the crawl, walk, run sort of thing. So okay. when we do two days of walls, when we do two days of cabinets, I walk them through on paper. My, my SOP, uh, my SOP checklist for a bedroom is 22 steps to paint a perfect bedroom. The wow. training behind that is about three hours worth of like time-lapse photo and this and that. The most important thing in this training program is not to spit out a fully operational autonomous painter. It's to sure. show them and focus their vision on what it's like to paint a bedroom. Because right. most people, I'm bringing people in who have never been in the trades and they think, well, listen, I helped my parents paint. It took yeah. us three weekends <laughs> to paint the bedrooms. And it's like, you need to wipe that from your mind because this bedroom yeah. is about three hours. We need to show you what a three hour bedroom looks like so that right. everything you do trains up to that. So we'll show them. I actually walk through them step-by-step. Step. We have two training bedrooms in our facility. Um, that, bedrooms that is actually, cool. yeah, it's dude, it, it has taken apprenticeship to a whole nother level because wow. we used to sneak these people into our clients' homes and we were, were quiet professionals. Nobody yep. ever knew we were training because we have high decor, all this other stuff, but we would train people on clients' houses. Now they get two days where the first day we just, we walk and crawl through a bedroom together. I show them every little bit, every little thing. And in the afternoon, they actually start doing the bedroom on their own with another person who knows what they're doing shoulder to shoulder. Wow. The second day, all they do is repeat it. And it's wow. just circuit training over and over and over again. And then likewise for the next two days, we do the same thing with cabinets. I bring them back into the war room. We go over my cabinet SOP. We walk through a cabinet and then we do that. This, that's the first week. We have now introduced people to this. Culture is high. Another thing we're doing, Tanner, is we're looking for something we call MPC, mass personal chaos. If some guy takes 17 cigarette breaks, during that first week, I'm not even going to let him go to the second week. You're Agreed. never going to meet my people in my company. If you're late yeah. three days in a row, yeah. you either accept our training or you leave. The second yeah. week, all they do is they alternate, paint a bedroom, prep a kitchen, paint a bedroom, prep a kitchen, all shoulder to shoulder with my trainer. Wow. And 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 a couple of things I want to hit on. I actually took some notes, but I want to go back real quick. How often does that happen where you actually bring somebody into this incubator and then 
you see what you call an MPC happen. I mean, that's got to be rare. Yeah. So what, what I find is that, so up until a month ago, we did apprenticeship 1.0, which okay. was I go out and I, I recruit decent human beings. I sniff out MPC the best I can. Yeah. And then I hand them off to one of my people who does live my core values. And then we together try to sniff out that MPC. And I would say 30% of the people sometime within the first three to six months will show enough signs of MPC that I need to remove them from the company. Wow. Now okay. with uh, apprenticeship 2.0, um, again, small data set, it's only been going for a month, but universally the two people we kicked out of our first, uh, training module yeah. have never been happier, never been okay. more well-informed and never been more well-received by the company. So MPC could always rear the head, but this is one more. Oh, actually I will tell you this apprenticeship 2.0 interesting data point. We were actually supposed to put four people through it. Um, okay. there was a, uh, a drywaller, a painter, a painter, and a decent human being. Painter and decent human being are now operating in my company. Drywaller and painter, when I told them he was hired, they were hired, I, I usually have a two-week waiting period before they okay. start Apprenticeship 2.0. That obviously gives them time to put a two-weeks notice in. Both of their employers counteroffered with about a dollar more an hour, and they took it. And initially, wow. I was bummed out, but in the end, I realized, oh, if you were willing to be swayed by a dollar an hour, one dollar. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and this is, this is coming from me, Tanner, where if you stay with me for a year, you get about 150 hours of paid time off. You get health wow. insurance, you get retirement, and you get a four day work week. And yeah. we were going at the end of that one year, if this person would have stayed with me, they would have made about two to $3 more than their more. employer was giving them. But all they saw Tanner was at $1 an $1. hour. And I thought, you know what? That two week waiting period is the best MPC detector yeah. I've ever had because these painters will come in and they'll jump ship for a buck. Good. You Good. didn't even make it to my company. I didn't waste training. Moving on. Moving on for 40 bucks a week. That to me is insane. I like, I like DHB, which I, I love decent human being. That is a great way to describe yep. somebody with absolutely no painting experience, but you vetted them as somebody's interested in learning the trade. That is, is, is extremely valuable to me. Um, one thing that, you know, really let's go back. Cause you just blaze through this as if it's no big deal. Sorry, man. I, I talk so much. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's good. Cause it's so natural to you. And I know that, you know, these standards that you've developed, I used to work at a, a, um, a sushi restaurant. It was the hottest restaurant in town. This place was booming, man. And as a 17, 18 year old to make $150 in a night, uh, was, was, it was a huge feat for me coming from $7 an hour as a busboy, right? So I finally got the opportunity to get an interview here, but the process to actually be somebody that they would allow on the floor to serve the food was very strenuous. It was a, it was a process. You, you had to know the entire menu from front to back. Not only that, the off the menu sushi items that were the high dollar rolls, you had to know this and they wouldn't let you on the floor. When I passed that test and I actually became a server. I valued that opportunity and that job so much more than if they said, okay, Tanner, you're allowed to go make money. Do you find that, that your other employees who see these individuals kind of crawling their way into the company through this basic training that you develop, do you see them kind of like have a little, not a chip, not a egotistical chip, but essentially a sense of pride. Like, 
I made it. Um, and that's rare to have in our industry. Do you find that, that that's yeah. occurring in your business? Yeah. Um, it, and, and not only does that occur, almost a sense of relief comes over because 2020 was an interesting year, as we all know, and it brought okay. up a lot of interest rates in people. And the thing that gave this company the most friction was MPC. Yeah. Some brought on by COVID, some just brought on by the natural occurrence of MPC. And it really did stress out a lot of my core craftspeople in the company. Sure. And when I came up with Apprenticeship 2.0, I briefed them on it. I got their input on it. I said, wave the magic wand. What can I deliver you, a craftsperson in the field? And they basically said, please, like introduce them to the tools, get them prepping, get them, just, just get them so on day one, they're not wide-eyed. And when we did put those people out there, yes, not only did that occur, a sense of relief is over my craftspeople now because there are people who I've done a lot of the dirty work already to get them there as a favor to them. And now they don't have to worry about that added stress of introducing people to the trades. Now they can just further them. So, wow. So it not only gives the apprentice something that he can be proud of, but it's also taking the pressure off of the, the higher level individuals who work alongside those apprentices, giving them a higher quality of, you know, uh, a, a work day where they're not having to babysit. So all that comes full circle, man. That is, that is awesome. There was a word that you used, uh, you called it Duragi. Can you, you only gave me three, um, <laughs> you only gave me three parts of that. So can you tell me what that acronym means and, and how yes. you use that in your business? That was pretty cool. So I want to, I want to talk about that. Yeah, we actually do a little bit of a uh, bastardized version of it. So there's a lot okay. of things, like a lot of things I took from the army, I took from college, I took from this and that, traction, all those other things. And it's fine, but I don't find myself adhering to them 100%. Maybe I'm just a little bit of a Bolshevik or something. But <laughs> demonstrate, <laughs> observe, yeah. <laughs> demonstrate, observe, redemonstrate, assign a task, goal set, and then inspect. So demonstrate, observe, reobserve, assign, goal set, and then inspect. Yep. The third, the third step is re-demonstrate. So basically yeah. kind of what we do is, you know, the demonstrate. I say, this is what it looks like. I bring their world into focus and say, this is what we're looking for. You know, it, it's, we always use the metaphor of the Lego set. If somebody just dumps out a, a thing full of Legos and says, build it, unless you have that instruction manual or a picture of what you're building, it's so confusing. So really right. what we do is say, here it is, the demonstration. Now you're going to observe me doing some of it. And then we're going to redemonstrate, or you're going to do it. And then I'm going to redemonstrate after you're done. Because now, once you start doing it, your brain thinks about it different and yeah. you start focusing on the minutia. Redemonstrate. That right there, that, that, that redemonstration, I think, for the individuals that actually have some sort of training, even myself, is what we neglect. Because what we'll do is we will demonstrate to somebody who has never seen it yet, right? And then they can't make an association after they've done it and they, they see it again. So that is what we're missing. I believe in my own company and many others is that we'll show somebody, okay, this is how you spray this. And then you do it. Okay. And then we'll observe and give criticism right there instead of showing it again and mm -hmm. making that system happen. Is that kind of what you've found? And is that, is that why this is valuable? 
That's it. And, and this is, this is magic for people who've never been in the trades before. Um, apprenticeship 2.0 was a great thing because we brought somebody who shared our core values, but had eight years of painting experience. And we also brought one of our fresh faced, decent human beings. And it was great to see the difference between the decent human being was basically being introduced to a 3M handmaster. This is the most foreign alien tool you've ever yeah. seen before. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you painter, weren't in the trade and you saw this <sighs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> it makes your eyes cross. You'll be loaded it for 20 minutes yeah. trying to get that plastic in there. The painter, who Absolutely. Came in, we basically just took him and said, Hey, you've been doing this type of painting for, for a long time. Look at this. Tell me what the differences are. And you could see him focus from what he knew before to something different and just say, Oh, yeah. so this happens here with this instead of this. And it was nice to kind of get both. Yeah. Part of the reason why you are not, I, I would say you wouldn't hire somebody with a ton of experience, but you're reluctant to is because of those old ingrained habits. People tend not to venture outside of their comfort zone, something that they've been doing for 20, 30 years. You know, again, I, you, you and I both know that I'm, I'm pretty sure that you want consistency in your business. Hard to achieve that without tape and caulk. Are you using tape and caulk for uh, interior painting to oh, keep the yeah, product man. consistent? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about painters is that if it was only a retraining problem, if it was only old dog, new trick thing, I think I could break them and get them to do it. Sure. The problem is even more important is, is they universally say, there's nothing I want more than to learn from the best, to, to, to advance, to have this and universally all do not follow through with that. So that to me it's is usually one ego. Oh, it's, it's all ego. And I, I specifically address that for painters. I, I almost try to talk them out of coming on with us because I say, yeah. <laughs> listen, you're going to tell me is that you're open to this. And what you're going to do your first day is not be open to it. And I'm going to remind you of this conversation. Yeah. So if you say you're open to it, we are going to have a very intentional conversation. And yeah. uh, usually to me, that, that unwillingness to accept training is just one more point of MPC yep. that I add to the pile of already there. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that assessment, you know, again, you know, starting off the relationship like that is going to wean individuals out. They're gonna be like, uh, I don't know, because they might not know you, right? I mean, I'm sure you get people that apply for you and have no clue who you are for the industry. So I don't, I don't know if that happens now. I mean, being as though you've been in Minnesota quite some time, has that happened? I mean, do people apply knowing who you are locally? Or do you actually find people applying now that have no clue who you are? And you kind of have to show them, hey, this is how we do things. We have a high standard. Yeah. So uh, two thoughts on that. Nothing makes me more proud of this statement. And nothing makes me want to throw up into a trash can more. Nobody who works for me know who I am. Um, I would say 98% of my clients have never heard of me. So People wow. think I have this super easy go of it. Like, oh my God, everybody knows Nick. Everybody forgets that contractors know Nick. Contractors know Nick. People, yeah. people, people who own businesses know me. Painters yeah. who want to work for us do not know me and definitely none of my clients do. So it makes me very proud that this is That's a good. pure experiment. I don't have any weird trump card up my sleeve. This is all yeah. done with grit, just like everybody else. Also makes me very uh, disappointed I can't capitalize on it better. Yeah, true, true, true. But I know that you've even recruited some individuals in your professional network through your, you know, your, your brand that you're building on social media. Has that ever worked out? I think maybe two, three years ago, you were looking for, I believe, a salesperson or a project manager. And you put that out on your public Instagram that you connect with contractors. Has that worked out where somebody's actually come and worked for you that has met you through these channels? One person, one, my estimate, one. Andy. Yep. 
And uh, yeah, so Andy used to run a, uh, he's a master crafts person, ran his own business for more than a decade, family business, and uh, shut his business down and moved his family here and, and joined the team and, and is rocking and rolling now. That's the only That's data amazing. point I ever have uh, that any of this stuff has played to my uh, opportunity. <laughs> hey, but that's a, that's a very important position, that estimating position. Yeah. Key so, piece. I, oh, it's insane, man. Yeah. That, that, so let's talk about kind of the dynamics and, and real quick, I do want to kind of get into you're you're not just Nick Slavic house painting, right? I mean, for me, when I try to help individuals kind of build some systems, I say, don't take anything, but one job type, because the estimating is different. The skill sets are different. The training is going to be different. The obviously, you know, estimating and uh, the the time that it takes to do the jobs are going to be different. The process are going to be different. You need to get really good at one thing and then you can expand. Nick, you probably do what? Like 10 to 15 different job types. I think I watched you scrape the siding on a 150 year old house one day and then you're doing cabinets the next day. I saw you refinishing a, a cabinet door yesterday. How many different yeah. job types do you do and how the heck do you manage all these different things with the scheduling with like, I know it's a very broad question, but if you can try to narrow it down, that yeah. would be helpful. What's the secret to that? Yeah. So the, the, when, when I talk to guys like you, Tanner, I like to go super um, macro on that stuff and say, yeah. if you're going to run what's considered to be a very large business in our industry, it's a micro business, but in our industry, uh, only 10% of the companies have any more than 10 painters in, in the entire painting industry. That's incredible. So, yeah, which is insane. Eight, like you said at the start of the show, 80% of our industry is one-person companies. Right. Um, so if you want to grow something much larger than that, I could not do it with only cabinet refinishing in Minnesota. Um, we have super harsh winters. It does play a role in how willing people are to let us into their houses you couple that with a global pandemic and kids virtual learning and parents working from home, we have wow. never had to fight more and accommodate more than this winter. So what I want to do is have somewhere between 20 and 25 painters working year round. In Minnesota, wow. most people go ice fishing in the winter and wow. they just shut their businesses down. For me, I want to do as much, if not more revenue, uh, October through March as I do in the summer. So if I just did cabinet finishing, I would have to turn out about 200 to 250 cabinets uh, in that time. I don't know that I could sell that many of just cabinets. So what we do is everything else as well. And I and it's not just for business growing reasons. I, I am maybe to the point of being a martyr uh, in love with the craft. And I want yeah. to restore Victorian houses. I want to brighten wood. I want to do decks. I want to do inside, outside, fine finishing, gloss oil. I want to do it all. And it all oh, yeah. interests me. Yeah. In terms of in terms of training, though, I mean, you have a room in your um, in your shop. That is where we learn walls, trim, ceilings, doors, application. You have a cabinet training facility where we learn fine finishing cabinets. Yep. How do we make the transition to learn restoration? Because restoration is a different animal. You used a product yesterday and you were mixing it and it turned, and then you were telling us that it turns into a solid and then the solid, it's an old painter's trick. Nick, you're trying to, I mean, how does that work? Because I would, my mind was blown. I'm like, how the heck am I going to teach someone this? I mean, you're teaching old painter's <laughs> tricks now, Nick. So I don't know how you're making that into a business. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, so easy to explain. Uh, the first slide in my onboarding presentation that I show people right on that big screen there is a picture of a Leatherman multi-tool and a Special Forces Green Beret soldier. The thing that those two things have in common is that they are 90 to 95% of everything that needs to be done can be done with those things. It may not be perfect. It may not be world-class. It's not a Mach 1 race car that's purpose-built for one thing, but wow. it will do 90% of what residential repainters can do. And I want to train my people. If you have four to five principles of how things get coated, finished, painted, you can apply that to anything if you're a decent human being. And that's why we focus so much on core values and mindset because Tanner, we, we train 90% of what we do, cabinet, trim, walls for interior stuff. After that, it's the weird stuff, the wallpaper stripping, the refinishing, the restoration, this and that. Somebody who's been with me for somewhere between one and three years has the mindset of a craftsperson and they're that Leatherman tool that can universally adapt themselves to anything. Uh, and we don't yeah. specifically have to train. So you're the guy that gets the jobs that the painters in the area are afraid to take. So essentially you're the one. And, and would you say that you've, you've capitalized on that as the, I would say, are you a monopoly in your area for restoration at this point? <laughs> oh, not even close. Really? Not even close. What's interesting is uh, there's a, there's a guy named Jason Paris up the road. He runs a five to $6 million painting company. Does wow. what I do. How about uh, that? He, again, He's, he's like, he's my younger big brother who's doing everything better than me. And he is a savant. He has a spreadsheet that actually calculated how much of the market his business has. Uh, as you know, like we just, sorry, this is a long winded way of bringing some perspective, but um, basically at my business stage right now, there's only 5% of businesses in our industry that are bigger than mine. And I don't take that as a sense of pride. People would think that I have monopolized Minnesota. And I will tell you this a 10 to $20 million painting company. I am a 1.5 to $2 million painting company. A 10 to $20 million painting company will only have about one to 3% of the entire Twin Cities market here. That's insane. So, that insane. so less, and we would think Tanner, my knee jerk reaction, your knee jerk reaction would be, oh my God, one of the biggest residential repaint companies in the entire United States is probably between eight and $10 million that everybody Agreed. knows about. Yeah. If that person, here, you would think that all the other painters would go out of business. Technically, right. they would have less than 5% of the entire market share. Well, one thing that I share is this, and this is, I mean, this is, just, I didn't do any research on this. This is just me and my mind working as I drive around. And I say, we're the only trade, Nick, that can actually perform the same or greater value inside the house as we can outside the house. Roofers can't put roofs inside. Hmm. Flooring companies can't put floors outside. Uh, drywall contractors can't drywall outside. We're the only trade that could do that. With that being said, if the market is every homeowner, double that, and we have double the market of every single trade in the world. Um, if I'm missing one, let me know, but I still haven't heard of one that can do both inside and outside, same or greater value dollar amount. Pretty cool, right? Mm. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Um, along that same line, I've always, I've always had this quandary like, a single person painter, I mean, how many jobs do you really need in a year? Do you need 50? Do you need 75? Right. Uh, right. And the thought experiment is like, well, why can't we just stumble across seven 
25 people to, to do this. It's harder than it looks in practice, right. which is interesting, right? right. And right. think even with a million dollar company, you're going to need 375 and 400 jobs. And you start thinking about the market value of that. The, the market value of painting is 1.1 billion in our, in our you know, tri-state area. Why can't I get 1 million of that? And you think yeah. this is going to be the easiest thing in the world. It's actually very hard in practice. Very hard. <laughs> it, you know, and it's the balance, right? It's the balance of yeah. first, you know, you can spend, I tell people this, you can spend, you know, a hundred thousand dollars on leads and get, you know, 10,000 leads, but that means nothing. If you can't produce 10,000 jobs, that's the trick, right? It's like this, a solid leader can balance all areas of marketing, production, yes. and sales. And that's what you've done. And I love what you've done in terms of you have this like system running in production that takes somebody from nothing and makes them to the standard of which they need to be. No one is greater than the whole, which is very important. And, and when I say that, I mean, you know, obviously my question to you was, Nick, you showed me a video yesterday of you doing some really crazy application method to restore where the hinges were on a cabinet door that have faded after so long. And you're telling me that your system doesn't rely on you to be the only one that can do that. And that is so valuable, especially because the problem that we discussed, the owners of these painting companies believe that they're the only ones that can provide a quality result. But you say, that's not the case. I created an apprenticeship system that teaches somebody from ground up to do everything that we can do as long as they are a DHB. Yeah. So what's interesting is that talking about universal principles, I took my two craftspeople, one of my highest performing teams, and I introduced them to that process for cabinet doors yesterday. And I showed the whole world what it looked like. Now, what's interesting is that the conversation behind that is, hey, guys, I'm going to show you a really unique use for that thing that we do all summer. You know how yeah. we restore decks and outdoor yep. furniture? We're using that same chemical. We're just going to do it on cabinets today. And you yeah. mix it up differently. It does the same thing. So again, universal principle. We used the same sack of chemical from Florida to do decks as we did those cabinet doors. And instantly their craftsman minds focused and they said, oh, yeah. easy. This yeah. time you make a paste out of it. You know, it's easy. Yep. Building confidence, building confidence. Let's, yeah. let's yeah. pivot real quick. I really want to touch base with you on, um, you know, again, getting into the, the dynamics of winter. I would say half of the individuals that <laughs> follow me, I'm very thankful that they do are from up north and they always ask, Tanner, what do I do in the winter? I've never found a strategy because guess what? I'm in Florida, Nick. I don't have <laughs> a strategy for that. I paint exteriors year round. I'm very spoiled. So I haven't <laughs> had the hurdle. We do deal with rain though. I mean, that can be a hurdle, oh, yeah. but it's never longer than usually three or four days, as long as, you know, you know, it's not a, a hurricane, you know, going on. So yeah. what is the winter strategy for individuals listening that want to be like you? They don't want to lay their guys off. And, and the reality of the situation is what do they do by default, Nick? They go and they hire subcontractors because they don't want the responsibility of having to keep them busy. So yep. they want to create company culture. They want to have employees. How do they get through these winters? What is your secret? Because you're keeping, you want to, your goal is you want to keep 20 to 25 individuals working throughout the winter. Um, that is a rarity. So what's the secret? Yeah. So a long, another one in the long line of unsatisfying answers, which is you need to produce more leads and you either do that by your labor or by your dollars. And early on, I would suggest that people do it by their labor. Um, right now, I don't have enough labor to spread around. So I do it with my dollars. Um, if you, if you subscribe to sort of industry benchmarks, I try to keep my marketing budget to 3.5% of total revenue. So Agreed if you do that. a million dollar business, I, I try to keep my marketing budget to $35,000, which sounds like a lot, but 
Um, the, the strategy that I use is painters in, in Minnesota and in the upper Midwest in summer do not need to market. You will have a full schedule by May every single year. So it would be very stupid of you as a business owner to waste some of that $35,000 there. I, I spend my whole war chest, October, November, December, January, February, March, six wow. months. I take that $35,000 and I expend it for a million dollar business. This year, it'll be close to $70,000. I do direct mail in that time in targeted neighborhoods for six months to drive those extra leads. And so you're it, not, it's not, oh, go ahead. No, I would say, so let's start. So direct mail is your lead of preference. You're not doing anything on Google, nothing digital. You're just sticking with direct mail. Yeah, so I did uh, two years of experiments over the last two winters. And all I care about, Tanner, is the cost per completed job. And some people, you know, the, it, a lot of people rely on the cost per lead number. I don't care about that. I care about produced. You know, when guys brag about how much they sold, it means nothing to me. Nothing. How much did you produce? So my metric is cost per completed, sold, done job. And Google ended up being $1,300 per job last last Really? Week. It was not a great spend of money. Now, what Google will tell you is, hey, do this for another five years and you'll build up that, that cachet with Google. And I said, right. not interested. I can't yeah. spend $1,300 a job. Facebook and Instagram, you can pull a lever and spend some money and make leads come out of that. But the leads are not as serious. So my closing right. ratio went way down. Agreed. And the instances of non-estimates is you know when when you get a hold of somebody and you try to line up an estimate and they just never respond or they say we don't need it or we found somebody else was very high so again it's like you can make leads show up and you can say here's my cost per lead but they're worthless we didn't produce hardly anything i did uh, a guerrilla style of direct mail so this is not print a bunch of postcards let somebody mail them out this is a hyper local company that puts a rubber band on each one of my postcards, walks it up to a door or a mailbox and wow. physically either sticks it aside or puts it on there. So the client has to interact with it. And wow. we go into targeted neighborhoods of my core demo. And, and has that worked? Yes. It's the thing that's driving. Um, I would say, wow. so interestingly enough, if you look at the 12 month period, half my business comes from word of mouth referral past clients. Right. And, the and other that's half continuing is to grow, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, always. If, if you continue to run a business, hopefully that will continue to yeah. grow. Uh, the other half are things that I have to force and pay for. And of all the things I've done, I cannot reliably run a business off the other forms of marketing. Uh, and as I grow a business, I need to be attentive to the apprenticeship program. So the alternative is if you have to do money or labor, I wish I could do the labor where we print off 150,000 flyers and walk them to every house. Not I don't course, have to for that. You don't have the exactly. Time. And that's what I would do if I didn't want to spend $70,000 this year, but I so, don't have the time. So we do that. So from a, from a overlooking standpoint, and this is where we're going to bridge and I, I want to be respectful of your time. This is probably going to be the last part yeah. of this. Um, from an overlook standpoint, you're really good with job costing. You commented on someone's post the other day. You said job costing is the foundation of your business. You can do anything with job costing on your side. Tell me about your job costing. Tell me about why that is so important to you when you started doing it, where the big epiphany was. I, I don't know if you started doing it right out of the gate or it was a time where you were just like frustrated and, and as I was the same. So tell me about why that's your, I would say one of your greatest, you know, attributes to success in business. Yeah. So, um, 
Job costing will answer every question that anyone has ever asked you, Tanner, about this. What do you charge for X? How do you schedule? When's it time to hire? Um, what, what, yeah, any of that stuff, any of all the questions that you and I always get, they'll all right. be answered by some form of job costing. I was shamed into job costing years ago because I, like every other person in our industry, is like, I'm killing it. My people produce twice what everybody else does. We make twice as much happier clients. We're making twice as much net profit. I'm right. killing it. You guys have no idea what's going on out there. And somebody said, oh, interesting, because I run a very big, prosperous business. And if you're an outlier, I would like to learn from you. And yeah. that was a feelings-based statement, and there was no data behind it. Wow. And so when he made me apply data to it, it was a come-to-Jesus moment where, you know what, Nick? You are full of it. That is, you are doing well, but yeah. not as well as you think you are. Wow. So now you actually put some data to it and you have to force yourself to look at it and make decisions because there's some things that aren't working. So that's how I was shamed into it by somebody who knew much more than me. And I'll never look back now. <laughs> yeah, of course not. Because there's a lot of confidence when you know where your numbers are. I think people get this confused, Nick. They'll hire an accountant. The accountant will provide them either a monthly P&L or a yearly P&L. But that doesn't tell us other anything other than all the business expenses. Some guys who own a sole proprietorship, LLC, they're buying their shoes on that account. They're they're paying for their electric bills on that account. They, they're not separating exact job costing. We're, I'm not going to expect that out of them. We're all guilty of it. But ultimately, we need to have something separate in order to do that so we can actually narrow down that paint that we use, that product we use, that lead cost, that labor that was applied to that job obviously for two reasons. One, we could see if we're overselling and not, you know, converting people the way that we should, or if we're underbidding after the job's done, we can identify exactly what I'm sure you do is go to your project manager. Where did we mess up here? Where did all this paint come from? Right. Is, is that something that you regularly kind of do in terms of checks and balances? Yes. Uh, the other part of all this stuff is human accountability drives everything. So SOPs are completely worthless. Job costing is worthless yep. if you don't hold somebody accountable to it. So every Monday morning right here, my two production managers, job cost, every single job that was completed the previous wow. week, we go over every one and we find trends. That's where we can find, hey, uh, our cabinet jobs are killing it. Our whole house trim projects need some sort of improvement. That lets me know that it might be good to get in the field with the people and sweeten up that process. So it's a, it's a really good come to Jesus moment. And we since we do it weekly, we can pivot every week and change what we do in order to improve. Yeah. And it, without waiting for that month end or that year end to occur where taxes, it's way too yeah. late. I mean, if you, if you wait for your uh, tax account to tell you if you made any money, you'll not be in business. <laughs> no, you will definitely not be in business. So it, it takes, it takes, a, you know, it, you know, that feedback loop is, is quick. Cause again, being able to narrow it down. And one other point about this is because you do this, You've been able to create roles inside of your business that are, you know, many people struggle with, right? Like, you know, if you're a project manager for Nick Slavic Painting Restoration, you're one of your responsibilities is job costing and looking at data. If you didn't create that in your business, that's one less thing that they do that they could be doing and you're paying them to do their job. And, and it just, you know, that's one less role, right? And your job is a business owner and leader is to create roles, responsibilities, accountability, and all these things. And, and again, I see why you say that job costing is a foundation that I'm a huge fan of job. I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's after you do it, you're like, I'm stupid to never not do this. I was yeah. flying. I was running a business based on feelings, the weather, yeah. moon phases, yeah, whatever yeah, the hell yeah, else. Right? 
if you had a bad meal for lunch, all of a sudden you get down on your business. It's just yeah. like, you yeah. can't, and, and especially Tanner, the best example is you go on three estimates at, at in the night and, and three clients right in a row tell you you're too overpriced. What do you do? You go back home and you completely tear up everything you know about pricing and have your price and you do all these crazy things. And if you have the yeah. data, the job costing, you can actually say, no, actually that's an accurate price. Those people just didn't, weren't going to use me. So let me, let me ask you this to piggyback on this. And some people have different ways of seeing this. You employ 25 people, Nick. So I don't, I'm very, I'm very, very, very interested in hearing your answer to this question. Okay. Do you negotiate your prices if you need the work? No. Um, when people ask for discounts, I say no, because I like pure, clean data. Um, I have gone through every winter, I think about the proverbial 10% off coupon sort of thing. And I have always gone back to, okay, if I'm going to take 10% off every job that I'm going to do this winter, it's likely that I will take off the equivalent of $75,000 of revenue. Now, is it a better strategy to discount your work $75,000 or is it better to spend that $75,000 and get more leads? To me, I will bet on leads every single yeah. time. One of those leads could be a $30,000 trim project. Got it. So the idea is, is that you would rather reinvest what you would be discounting anyway to generate more opportunities that are going to convert to the margins of which you have built your business on, which although it's not the quick, easy way. It's the way that you know is true based on your ability to calculate data and to see these things that it works. You have confidence in your marketing, which gives you the confidence yeah. to not lower your pricing because you know, ultimately more opportunities leads to more sales. And, and Tanner, to, if I'm being honest, I have no proof in my own data set because it's that it's, it, it's so hard to suss out and no other painter has ever produced reliable data to me to show that discounts made all the difference in that stuff. Cause you don't know, maybe that person was going to take it anyway, you know? Yeah. So uh, to me, it's like, I know when I pull the lever on direct mail, I'm going to get a certain amount of leads. You pull yep. the lever on discounts. Who knows what the hell is going to come out of that? Exactly. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great feedback, Nick, man, such a pleasure having you today. And I kind of wanted to just give a, a little shout out. Nick does a weekly live uh, ask a painter. I'm sure you've seen it. If you haven't, you have to, because you're, the, you're very consistent with this. I mean, I think every Friday, since I was a little kid, you've been doing this, man. I I've seen it every Friday. Tell me about ask a painter, man. What can we, what can we expect if, if somebody checks out ask a painter? Yeah, man. Weekly live show, Facebook. Uh, I've been doing it uh, for Fridays for almost five years. I've recently done a little run of Saturdays uh, because people oh. were complaining that I got to work. <laughs> so I've been I've been going coffee in the war room on a Saturday morning, and we have we have done some pretty amazing interactions. The interactions have 10x since people are actually not working during the show. So I'm going to weave it in there. But the basis of it is we can go deep on the molecular structure of oil primer. We can talk what we're talking about here. We can talk about human accountability, entrepreneurship, anything in between. Um, we can talk about Victorian restoration. I love the coding science. I love the business part and any and all question. I've never been stumped or I can't find you a resource on it. <laughs> and I also, I, I share a lot of my, uh, I share a lot of my resources too. When we talk about things to build your business, especially job costing, I've handed out hundreds and hundreds of my templates for that stuff just to get people going. 
Awesome. So every Friday, Ask Painter Live. Now, real quick, you're affiliated with PCA. I see you tag them a lot. What's, do you have a role in PCA or are you just kind of a, a trusted partner? How, what is your role there? Yeah. So about five years ago, I got involved with the PCA, the Painting Contractors Association. It's a nonprofit uh, trade organization, an advocate for our entire industry. And uh, that's where I got shamed into job costing. Wow. Uh, I showed up at my first PCA Expo. You know, there's 500 to 1,000 people there from all over the world. And uh, I thought it was going to be a whole bunch of people like me who were there to talk about primer and stuff. And the first two people I met ran a $9 million <laughs> painting business. The next wow. person I met ran an $18 million painting business. And you can imagine the conversation like, hey, what do you do? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a house painter. They're like, yeah, me too. How many guys you running? Oh, 180. I'm like, oh, my God, it's just me. Like, okay, yeah, so yeah, now yeah. we got to learn a little. So, but those are the people who took me aside four hours at a time after dinner and basically just gave me the whole rundown. And they called me out on all my BS. They enlightened me to the world of what it is to be a leader, an entrepreneur, and a master craftsperson. And it just wow. blew my world open. And you can see the hockey stick curve, you know, from when I got introduced to the people there to there. So I'm, I'm a huge fan just because all the people like you and me are there, Tanner, and they're thought leaders. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So if somebody wants to join the PCA, easy to join um, at PCA. I'm sure there's a little bit of a you know filtering out process. The next event is in Orlando, I think, in 2022. Yeah, it's it, just like everybody. It's this rolling sort of like, hey, let's plan an expo, and then yeah. it doesn't happen. And then you're like, yeah. So uh, in, in lieu of that, I've actually uh, joined up with the PCA, and we're filling a calendar of in-person events for myself across the country to really? sort of do maybe 10 to 30 person expos all over. That's coming together and probably be released in the next couple of weeks here. All right, man. That's super exciting. Hey, Nick, thanks so much for your time. It's, it's been a pleasure. I learned, I got a whole sheet of notes here for myself <laughs> and I'm sure if anybody is, is wise, which I know anyone listening to this is, you'll take Nick's advice on some of the things that he said. Thank you so much, man. Hey, it's awesome opportunity. Thanks, Tanner. All righty. Hey, I just want to take a second to thank you for joining me here on the Contractor Secrets Podcast. Um, I'm just going to take this opportunity to let you know that my passion is coaching people, helping people. Um, I've changed my Instagram name to at Contractor Coach, and I did that because that is my passion. I want to help you. So please reach out to me. If you have an issue going on in your business, send me an email. Find me on Instagram, message me, and let's do a breakthrough session. I want to work through your problems in your business to help you get to that next level. And, and one thing that I always say is this, you know, the difference between those that get over the humps and the hurdles in business is just a change in perspective. And that's what I plan to offer you. So get with me, message me, allow me to help you take your business to the next level.